to share with you a message today that I've titled, The Rest You Need. Don't we all feel that burden that we need rest? Uh, ultimately, this is going to be pretty close parallel. We're following through the book of Luke, but there you're going to see some common themes with what Brother Keith Richardson shared with you a couple of weeks back. As he talked about this ultimate rest that Christ came to provide for us, so they wouldn't have to keep pushing through with our own efforts, trying to make things our own way into God's pleasant paths. Because ultimately, God has provided these things for us already. But, but just a little question for you guys. As we get started here today, by, by a show of hands, how many of you were told when you were younger that Sunday was a day of rest? That's a, it's a good number of us, right? Were, were any of you forbidden to work on Sundays? Like maybe you couldn't cut the grass or you couldn't vacuum because it was Sunday. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, good portion of you as well. What about any of you, were any of you told that you couldn't do these things on Sunday because Sunday was the Sabbath day? Would any, any of you get that? Yeah, so that's a good number of us who have that sort of experience, that sort of background, that sort of understanding of what the Sabbath day is. Well, today we're going to hone in on this idea of the Sabbath. This biblical concept of a Sabbath. And we're going to try and glean from Jesus' actions in Luke chapter 6 about what ultimately the purpose of this day is for those of us who are in Christ. What does a Sabbath look like for a Christian? Is this just a carryover of what happened in the Old Testament? Or are we looking at something different? Because ultimately, when Jesus comes to the earth, we find him encountering individuals who are practicing certain things on the Sabbath and prohibiting others from practicing those different things on the Sabbath. And, and Jesus brings to them great conflict. He challenges their understanding of the Sabbath. He really shakes up the foundations of all that they have come to know when it comes to the Sabbath. Now, some of you hear that word, Sabbath, and you think, what on earth is that? Because it's not a word that we tend to use very often now. And if you don't, haven't come from kind of a church background, you haven't heard that word, it's okay. Just let me explain for you a little bit about what we mean when we're talking about the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath is an important concept in the Bible. And it's, it's a concept that really comes from the fourth of the Ten Commandments. I mean, there's the, the, those commandments will point back, as we'll see here in just a moment, to Genesis and God's original creation of things. But when we talk about the Sabbath, we're most often specifically talking about this command that's given the fourth of the Ten Commandments. When it's first given in Exodus chapter 20, I want you to notice that the context and the purpose and the reason why God gives for why this command should be obeyed is points back to creation. But then we'll find a reiteration of this commandment in Deuteronomy as the people are about to move into the promised land. And the purpose is a little bit different. So just listen to how this command was given in Exodus chapter 20. In the midst of the Ten Commandments, here's the Fourth Commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, there's that point to creation, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So here in Exodus chapter 20, we see that tie of this commanded day of rest, the seventh day of the week, this final day of the week, commanded to be a day of rest to celebrate God's work in creation once his creation was completed, God Rested. That's what we find back in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, here is what we read about God ultimately es establishing this practice of rest. And what do we read in Genesis 2, 2 and 3? By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. And so when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 5, so that, that, that's the context, that's the basis that, that originally 
the, the Ten Commandments were given in, this pointing back to the original foundation of creation. But when we get, when we get to, so the, the nation of Israel has been wandering around in the desert. They're preparing now to take the promised land that God has promised them. In Deuteronomy, we find that Moses steps forward, and ultimately Deuteronomy altogether is kind of like this final sermon of Moses. Here's the content that you need to know as you prepare for the life that God has in store for you, as you now move into the promised land that he has provided for you. And so in the midst of that, Moses reiterates the Ten Commandments. But when he reiterates, listen to the change of the purpose for this fourth commandment. Deuteronomy chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you so that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you all that's pretty similar to what we see in Deuteronomy I mean in Exodus to this point but now we get to verse 15 you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So ultimately, we see that the same practice is ordered, but it's based upon a different event, a different act of God. Now, both of these are ultimately great acts of God, which enable individuals to rest, right? When we talk about God resting in creation, was it like God was tired? No, he is the God who never gets weary, who never grows faint. What, was it that, you know, God somehow just needed to take a break and kick up his feet? No, God is ultimately providing something for us, we'll find in the New Testament, that is to be a benefit for us. But that first event happens because God has done a great work, right? Man could not rest if God had not already done the work which would enable him to rest, right? Imagine if, you know, halfway through creating Adam, well, now God decides to instantiate his rest. Well, is Adam going to live through that? No. You know, if God had not completed the other days of creation, if there, if there had not been a garden which was there, which was prepared for Adam to partake of food from, and God had taken a rest, what would happen to Adam? Well, Adam would ultimately die, right? So what we find is that in this day of rest, there is a lesson for Adam that he can celebrate, he can worship and and realize all that god has provided for him the same thing is the basis of what we see in over in deuteronomy when this command is reiterated because there moses talks about how ultimately god has done another great work this great work was the the great work of what we know as the exodus as the people of israel were there in slavery in egypt and god delivered them from that nation with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, God, God did this amazing, awesome work of redemption to bring his people out, to buy them back from their slavery in Egypt. And so here we have another great work of God that becomes another impetus for mankind to rest in what our creator has done. And there's this common theme of resting in the finished work of God. And for the Jews, this Sabbath day was observed on the seventh day of the week. That's the day we now know as Saturday. So the question then that we have when we come to a passage like the one we're going to see here today, or even when some of you have just read through the Ten Commandments, you say, well, what does all this mean for me? Right? Why would most people in the church not kind of be practicing these things? Or maybe I need to be getting in line and I need to be acting out uh, in, in accordance with the, the Scriptures. But are we still bound by the commandment to observe the Sabbath? If so, is that Sabbath then to be observed on Sunday or is it to be observed on Saturday? Right? There seems to be a lot of confusion in how this ought to be carried out. And some seek to keep this literal Old Testament Sabbath of the seventh day of the week, meaning the Saturday, Sabbath. And the, the, the groups of Christianity that would do that sort of thing would be Seventh-day believers. They're also known as Sabbatarians, okay? So you might have heard of Seventh-day Adventists, for example. 
They worship together on Saturday. That is their Sabbath day. Or there are also Seventh-day Baptists who carry out this same sort of practice. Others claim that Sunday has become the new Sabbath day, the new day of rest for Christianity. And ultimately, this has some historical ties, but not right up against the biblical times, because ultimately we find that when the Roman emperor, Constantine, became a Christian and designated Christianity as the religion of the Roman Empire at that time in the 4th century, At that time, he designated Sunday by law to be the day of rest and the day of worship. And now, now there are ties and themes of biblical worship on this first day of the week, even in biblical times. I mean, ultimately, we talk about, and we see Scripture talking about the first day of the week being the Lord's day, okay? That's the day on which the Lord was resurrected from the grave, that the first day of the week was the day in which he uh, was resurrected. And so that's why we gather together here today. We're here on the Lord's Day celebrating the Lord's resurrection. Ultimately, every Sunday we gather together is a resurrection celebration. I mean, that's why we have chosen as a religion, as, as, as a faith group, to have this day be the day when we are going to get together and exalt the praises of our King. Because This is the day on which the victory has been won for us. But even there in biblical times, we see this practice carried out. The church is meeting there on the first day. But there's no mention in the scriptures of that being the Sabbath day. But there we go. We've got the establishment through this Roman emperor, Constantine, who establishes there in the 4th century this practice that that Sunday is going to be the Sabbath for the Christians. Then in the 14th century, there was a Catholic theologian known as Thomas Aquinas, who ultimately kind of cementing this as an official doctrine of the church in that day. And there were dissenting views of reformers, including Martin Luther and and John Calvin, as the Reformation came through. Ultimately, they did not see Sunday as a Sabbath, but still, this idea of the Christian Sabbath being on Sunday pushed through the Reformation into the time of what are known as the Puritans. Those individuals who desired to live with a higher level of purity in their lives in the nation of England back in the 16th and 17th centuries. The Puritans were very rigorous about ensuring that the Sabbath day was observed. In mid-17th century England, it was, it was against the law, for example, to engage in any type of recreation on Sunday. Even going for a walk on Sunday for the Puritans was considered to be a sinful activity. And so that Puritan sort of mentality came with those new travelers to the new world as the settlers settled in here in what we now know as America, the United States of America, it manifested itself in what were known as blue laws. Some of you have heard of the blue laws before, right? Blue laws mean you can't do certain things on what day? Sunday, right? There's certain things which you are not allowed to do, and so these are laws that govern individuals and businesses on Sunday. As one example, until just a few years ago, just, just in 2014 this law changed, but, but until just a few years ago, it was illegal to hunt in Virginia on Sunday except for raccoons, which could be pursued until 2 a.m. in the morning, all right? And so there were some interesting sort of mixes of laws, and there are still some of those in place in various places about how businesses and individuals ought to conduct themselves on Sundays. But these laws are an outcome of this particular view which sees Sunday as the new Sabbath day for Christians. But that just doesn't fit this Jewish model because for Jewish individuals and the Jews in particular, that this Sabbath was always on the final day of the week, always on the seventh day of the week. They didn't even name the other days of the week, as a matter of fact. They just numbered them according to their relationship to the Sabbath. And still others consider that the Old Testament Sabbath is a part of this Jewish ceremonial law. Now, ultimately, I'm going to count myself in this camp. So let me just explain to you a little bit about what we're talking about ceremonial law. When you look to the Old Testament law of Moses, you are looking at the law by which the nation of Israel had bound itself to live, okay? 
Now, when, when you and I talk about living by a law, we've got a government structure that is in place that has established kind of the law that we abide by, right? So there's a speed limit when you're driving out on the road. You've got to obey what that speed limit is because the law of our land specifies this is the way you ought to live. But Israel was what we call a theocracy. Their governing organization was not a democracy as we have. Ultimately, they were governed directly by God. And so there are certain laws which we would refer to as civil laws in the Old Testament, which apply to kind of the government of that nation. And on top of that, they had this religious system of sacrifices and Sabbaths and, and things that had to be carried out in this ritualistic sort of way in order to keep the obligations of the law. And that's another component of the law. That's what we would refer to as the ceremonial law. And then there's a third component. These classifications are helpful. They're not always clearly able to be delineated in Scripture. But there's a third category of law, which is known as the moral law. Ultimately, what we would talk about when we talk about the moral law is the law of God, which kind of is essential to his character, the law of who he is. Now, how do we delineate the moral law? The way that, that most ethicists will tend to do that in the Christian sphere is that they will look back to the time of creation before mankind fell and see what are the conditions that God had set up at that time, okay? And so at that time, they would look to say, well, you know, was God practicing in certain ways? And ultimately, most ethicists who take this sort of approach will look at the Ten Commandments as an essential, boiled-down version of this is God's moral Law. This is how God has established for things to work because they say every one of these aspects of creation was active there before the fall of mankind. You guys tracking with me so far? And so the Sabbath then would be a part of that moral law because ultimately what did God do there in Genesis chapter 2 that we just read? On the seventh day he rested, right? And so there is, a, there is an establishment, there is a carrying on, and I do believe that there is a pertinence of God's Sabbath for all people in all times. I do believe that it's part of the moral law. But there is a, there's a carrying out of this, there's an implementation of this that is specific in the seventh day observance of this Sabbath that I would see as being more of that ceremonial law and how the Jews were to carry themselves out. And I'm, I'm going to try to explain that for you in Scripture as we get a little bit deeper here today, okay? As we get into the Scriptures and interact with what Jesus is doing here, I think what you're going to see is that ultimately there is still a Sabbath for Christianity, but it's a Sabbath that's fulfilled in an entirely different sort of way. And because there's so much context, so much background to this message, I've decided to break this up into separate weeks. But today we're going to be taking a, a couple of points on how we can kind of live out within God's rest what he calls for us to do uh, in this Sabbath in which we're called to live in. We're going to see Jesus applying that ultimately. But we have a rest, my friends. But this rest that we have is founded upon a greater act of God. It's founded upon a greater act than that of creation. It is founded upon a greater act than that of, of God calling out his slaves from Egypt. It is ultimately based upon the act of God setting us free for all of eternity through Christ and his finished work on our behalf. This becomes the basis for a Christian Sabbath. And so... Here we're going to find in Luke Jesus' actions and his confrontational teachings against those who were striving to be ultimately the Sabbath police of his day. They had their own interpretation, they had their own expectations of how this law was to be lived out, and so they would essentially go from place to place trying to find individuals who weren't doing it right, calling them out, condemning them for what they were doing wrong according to God's law. And Jesus came to show individuals the truth, even when that truth came in the form of great confrontation and required great confrontation. And the confrontation that we see over the Sabbath in today's passage is just one of many confrontations that we see between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day who needed to hear the truth. 
The supposed people of God had missed the heart of God. And Jesus wasn't about to let them get away with that. God's heart in creating this day was to be a blessing to men and to point to a greater blessing to come. But the problem that Jesus encountered as he came here to the earth was that the religious leaders were now displaying that, that ultimately the ritual and the shadow and the things that were pointing to his very arrival were the things which they were clinging to as more important than the one who was there before their eyes, who was the fulfillment of all of that. And that's what we're going to see Jesus coming up against. Jesus challenging here in these verses. So here are the Pharisees. These, we talked about the Pharisees, and we're going to keep talking about the Pharisees as we work through the book of Luke. The Pharisees were the uber-religious Jews of Jesus' day. These were the individuals who were responsible for keeping up with the Scriptures. There was a group within them known as the scribes who would transfer the Scriptures from one to another. The Pharisees were the ones who applied the Scriptures. They came up with all the regulations that told you whether or not you were living right in God's sight. And there are ultimately just about 6,000 of these individuals that are living in Jesus' day. But they had a tremendous influence on the Jewish society because they were the keepers of the law. And Jesus is here encountering them because ultimately what Jesus says is that they tie up heavy burdens and they place them on people's backs such that they are too much to bear. When the Pharisees are trying to, to ultimately say, here's how you live for God, they're making it where no one can live for God. They're placing the burdens on individuals and, and they're crushing individuals under the load of the responsibilities and the obligations that they say you should keep for God. And so they're oppressing others. They're oppressing them with a commandment of God that was meant to be a blessing, as we'll see Jesus says to us regarding this passage. And Luke loves to show how Jesus came for the outcasts of society. Those who were beaten down, those who were oppressed by the religious system of Judaism, who were present in his day. Jesus loved to come and show how he was setting the prisoner free. How he was releasing the one who had been held captive. The one who had been overburdened. He was coming to lift that burden. Jesus, in his time on earth, was ultimately showing that he had come to provide a gospel for those who are rejected. That's why we've titled this series, Outcasts. Because Jesus, over and over again in the book of Luke, is dealing with those who would be casting others out as well as rescuing those who have been cast out by the system in their day. And Jesus is still doing that, my friends. I don't care how you've been treated in society. I don't care what your background is. I don't care how far you feel like you've come from God or even being able to be a part of an assembly like this one right here Jesus is still there for you Jesus is still reaching out to each and every one of us in our fallen nature seeking to restore us to the kingdom of God and that is a sure word for each and every one of us but Luke 6 shows us our warrior who is stepping up against oppression in action once again and in these first six verses, ultimately there's two, there's two Sabbath controversies that are going to be back-to-back in Luke chapter 6. And because there's so much context, I've decided to, to carry the other one to next week. But in these first six verses, we see Jesus embroiled in the first of two separate controversies concerning, concerning the Sabbath that are back-to-back in Luke's gospel. There are two other controversies that we see later on that we'll encounter when we get to chapters 13 and chapter 14 this is an issue that jesus addressed multiple times and luke wants to really draw our attention to what's happening through these instances but today's verses in particular are going to show us how jesus the champion of the oppressed came to deal a blow to the oppressors when it came to the observance of the sabbath so let's join luke now in luke chapter 6 verses 1 through 6 would you stand with me in honor of god's word as we read together Luke chapter 6, first six verses. Now it happened that while he was passing through some grain fields on the Sabbath, there's that day, that day of rest, and his disciples were picking the heads of grain, 
rubbing them in their hands and eating the grain. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus, answering them, said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions. And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. You may be seated. So what we've read here in these first five verses is ultimately about Jesus in battle with those who are not honoring the proper heart of the Sabbath. So let's just kind of see what we can glean from these verses about the battle and how we should interact with the Lord's rest. And ultimately over these this Sunday and next Sunday, I'm going to share with you five lessons on how we should honor the Lord's rest. We're going to cover two of those today, okay? The first lesson on how we should honor God's rest is this, though. Don't confuse a blessing for a burden. Let me say that again. Don't confuse a blessing for a burden. Ultimately, what we see here is in this setting, Jesus and his disciples are simply out moving from one place to another. They've probably got some other ministry obligation. God is, is directing them to go to some other place. And as they're going, they're going through a rural area where there are grain fields. And as they're going through these grain fields, ultimately we read in Matthew's gospel that the disciples were hungry. And what, what do you do when you're hungry? Yeah, you guys have really got this. You've been studying up. I appreciate it. You eat. Yeah, when you're hungry, you eat. And so the disciples were picking heads of grain as they were going through. They would, you know, kind of sift them around in their hand to, to wear off the husk and blow that husk up in the air. And then they've got the grain which is left and you can eat that grain. And so they're doing that in the fields of strangers, which to us would probably mean that you're going to have a shotgun coming after you, right? But not so in Jesus' day. As a matter of fact, there was a provision for this sort of thing in God's law. Because God's law in Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 25 had this to say, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. He's saying, ultimately, look, you don't clean out your neighbor's crop, right? You don't have the authorization to take your sickle and clean it all out and take it home with you, right? But if you're going through and you're hungry and you need something to eat, it's okay to pick up a head of grain, right? That, that's not going to kill the crop. And so there's a provision for that there in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25. Nobody was going to be coming out with their, you know, Jesus time shotgun to run these folks off. That's just not what would have happened here. The issue, though, the issue that the Pharisees have in the midst of this day is that Jesus' disciples had carried out this activity, this eating of the grain, this plucking of the grain. They carried this out on the Sabbath day, on that seventh day of rest this was a day when God said you should rest and according to the applications of the Jewish law that the Pharisees had established and that they were governing at that point this activity was in violation so like the Sabbath police right they turn on their blue lights woo 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 stop what are you guys doing here you're in violation of code 18 code 19 you know and they're and they're reading through the obligations now <clears throat> You should know that ultimately the Pharisees had taken what was a simple command of God and they had multiplied it into burdens that were far beyond what God had intended. As a matter of fact, they had compounded God's command such that there were 1,521 ways that you could break the Sabbath. That sounds like an interesting read, doesn't it? But Adrian Rogers wrote the following. He said, nothing escaped their notice. If you got a tack in your sandal... You better take it out on Friday night before sunset or you'll be carrying a burden and breaking the Sabbath. If you've got a flea on you, you better get him off before sunset on Friday. If not, you try to kill him on Saturday, you're hunting on the Sabbath day. You could put vinegar in your mouth and swallow it on the Sabbath because it was all right to eat. But don't hold the vinegar in your mouth very long if you have a toothache for that would be to practice healing on a sabbath day it got so bad that the jews would not eat an egg that was laid on a saturday because the hen had worked on the sabbath 
day. Can you see how those regulations were complicated? Can you imagine living within that? Like, oh my goodness, what am I supposed to do? Better not touch anything, right? I mean, I would probably just sleep the whole day. I'd be worried I'd mess something up. Like, I wouldn't yank on my blanket too hard. I'd be worried I overworked. So as you might expect, the Pharisees saw Jesus' disciples plucking the heads of grain, and they said, you can't do that. You're harvesting. They saw the disciples rubbing the grain in their hands. They said, you can't do that. You're threshing. They saw them blowing away the chaff, and they said, you can't do that. You're winnowing. And then when they ate, they said, you can't do that. You're preparing food on the Sabbath day. All of these things are forget forbidden according to our laws. And we just get a sense here of the burdens of the Jewish religion that were being placed on men's backs. Can you imagine trying to feel righteous in that sort of situation? What an awful burden to bear in trying to keep the Sabbath along with these 1,521 stipulations that have been applied Well, Jesus isn't just going to let an accusation like what they've made at him here fly by. He's not just going to let them accuse his disciples of violating the Sabbath. So he calls the Pharisees out on it. And he does so in a way that really would have gotten under their skin. Because ultimately the Pharisees are the keepers of the law, right? They're they're the ones who are to keep up with the scriptures. They are the ones who, above anyone else in Israel, knows the scriptures, They considered themselves to be the experts in this realm. And Jesus says in verse 3, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry? Of course they'd read it, right? This This was their realm. This is what they had to keep up with. This was, you know, their wheelhouse. But what they needed was understanding. They didn't need to just read. They needed someone who could interpret those scriptures for them. They needed someone who could come and as an authorized representative of God perform miracles that showed that he was capable of revealing God's truth as he stepped out of God's created order to make the winds and the waves stop on the stormy sea or to walk across the water or to bring that great load of fish that we read about back earlier in Luke, or, or to make the one who was paralyzed to walk again, as we've already read in Luke's gospel as well. Ultimately, they needed someone who could show them what this text meant, and that someone had now come because Jesus was here. In the account about David and his men that Jesus draws the Pharisees to here alludes to what we find in 1 Samuel chapter 21. This was in a time when David was ultimately being pursued by the king at that time, the official king at that time, who was Saul. King Saul was jealous of David because David had found favor in God's sight. David had killed the Philistine giant Goliath. There were people who were chanting, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands. I mean, people were really on board with David. And God's favor was on David. God had chosen David to be his next king. And Saul wasn't having any of that. So Saul was seeking to king kill God's anointed one, David. When David learns of this plot that Saul is trying to kill him, he and his men flee from Saul's regime. And as they're on the way out, they get hungry. I mean, they're ultimately running for their lives. They haven't had time to prepare food. And as they're running, they come to the house of God and they ask the priest who is there, do you have anything to eat? And ultimately the priest says, well, we we don't have anything except for the showbread. This this showbread was bread which God's commands required be placed out every seven days. Fresh bread would be placed out. And only the priest could eat that bread which had been removed. And David and his men are given this bread by the priest so that they can eat. Ultimately, the priest says, you know, are are your men keeping themselves from sin? If so, then you can eat this bread. But it was unlawful for ultimately anyone except for the priest to eat that bread. So the fact that the priest gives that to David and his men and they are not condemned because they partake of this bread, Jesus shows is ultimately a sign that God has a greater purpose in store. 
that ultimately God's law isn't just here to, to be a weight and an encumbrance upon us. When there is a hunger, when there is a need for mankind, God desires for that need to be met. God is not just concerned with these religious obligations. God is concerned for mankind. The obligations are there because they become a nice framework through which we find his blessings and the, the realization of his purpose and a greater right relationship and fellowship with him. And it's not painted in a negative light that David and his companions ate this. What they were doing was normally unlawful, but Jesus essentially shows here that the law wasn't meant to harm individuals. It wasn't meant to starve the hungry, even though that's what the Pharisees were trying to do on this day, right? They would rather have the disciples to starve than to be plucking heads of grain on this day of the Sabbath. What the Pharisees should have known, if they were really well-versed in the Scriptures like they claimed that they were, they should have known what we find in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 to 17. Because that's where we read about how God is upset with his nation because they multiply sacrifices, but they neglect, neglect the more weighty things, the more important things. They carry out the rituals, but they miss God's heart in the process. And my friends, I tell you, that's a danger for each and every one of us. That we would carry out the obligations, but that we would miss God's heart. That we would keep ourselves from sin, but in the process we would trample over our neighbor who is lost in sin and not extend to him the bread of life, which is Christ. And so let each of us take heed to the Pharisees here because ultimately there's a bit of Pharisee in each and every one of us. But what did God tell the nation of Israel in Isaiah 1? He said, bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and, here's that word, Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Look at, look at how God says you should ultimately be concerned about my heart. What's, what does verse 17 say? Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. You see, God isn't just concerned with the formalities of obedience. He's concerned that we share his heart. He wants us relieving the burdens of others, not adding to them. And so in Matthew's account of this same event in Matthew chapter 12, we read that Jesus tells the Pharisees what this means. He says, I desire compassion and not sacrifice. That's what Matthew's account includes, along with these words of Jesus. And he tells them in Matthew's account that they have condemned the innocent. That's essentially what they're doing. Jesus' disciples are just trying to meet a very real need in their lives, and the Pharisees are condemning them for that. Because the Pharisees had done this, my friends. They had confused a blessing for a burden. And Jesus calls the calls them out on that god had actually designed his sabbath to be a blessing for people right do, do any of you want to be working seven days a week probably not right i mean we live in a society that's got a pretty good setup wherein we get two days a week off right uh but but you know i think there are a lot of people who don't celebrate a sabbath because they're kind of celebrating you know a whole week of not working but the reality is God has got this nice plan in place that becomes a very beneficial sort of thing. If you're in a society that requires you to work over and over again, you get a day of rest. What a blessing, right? God had designed his, his Sabbath to be a blessing to people. That's why Jesus says in Mark's account of this same event, Mark chapter 2, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. It's not like God's got these long list of obligations that he's, you know, really rejoicing when, we, when we're keeping all those obligations. He's given this day as a gift to us. It was made for 
us. And Adam and Eve, for example, they're in the Garden of Eden with this first Sabbath rest. As God is resting, they are in need of nothing. For God to be able to rest, they must have needed nothing. And this is just a sign of what God has given, God has provided. So don't confuse a blessing for a burden. Now let me just give you one way that I see this kind of playing out sometimes. I'll hear of individuals who, for example, will, will know someone who gets involved with a, a group of youth at church or they get involved with a, a, a student ministry of some sort. And they'll say about those individuals, oh, it's such a shame that they never go to church. Like, you know, like somehow the fact that those students are never going to church means that somehow those students are like less worthy in God's sight. They're, they're less fulfilling of the religious obligations when the reality oftentimes is that, you know, those youth just don't have anyone to carry them to church on a regular basis. They've, they've taken the blessing, right? When we gather together here in worship, my friends, we receive a great blessing. And ultimately, the, the Scripture says not to forsake the assembling of yourselves together because we have, through this opportunity, a chance to gather and worship our Redeemer, a chance to build one another up. But sometimes we take this free obligation, this, obli- this, this opportunity for us to come and to celebrate what God has done for us, and we turn it into a burden. And there are some individuals who've been involved with churches, right, where they don't get that encouragement. They, they don't get that feeding, right? They, they go to church, and, the, and they get like, you know, boring ritual that never has the truth of the gospel weaved in. It's, it's a social sort of, let's, let's get together and talk about some positive things and share some encouraging stories that don't have anything to do with the gospel, right? Some individuals have had that experience. And we look at them and say, well, you know, because you're not going to church on a regular basis or because you've been burned in a church in the, back, in, the, in the background of your life and you're not regularly engaged in a body, that, that somehow you're less of a Christian in God's sight. When the reality is that, that what we are doing here, my friends, must be a blessing. And if it's not being a blessing, then we are missing something because God has done wonderful things for us in Christ. And healthy churches ought to become a natural magnet for Christians to come and worship what God has done. And I hope and pray that that is what God is doing here, what we are being submissive to and willing to do in setting up an environment here. But let us never turn a blessing into a burden for other individuals, right? So the first lesson on how we should honor the Lord's rest is this. Don't confuse a blessing for a burden. The second is this. Don't mistake the shadow for the substance. Don't mistake the shadow for the substance. In Jesus' words here in verse 5, we have this very succinct summary of what our understanding of the Sabbath should be based upon. It's there where Jesus simply says, The Son of Man. That's a term that Jesus uses throughout Scripture to refer to himself. He says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. You see, Jesus is the ruler of this day. Jesus is the ruler of this commanded rest of God. Jesus is the one who provides the authority over this day. He is the one who has come to reveal a greater provision of God through redemption that results in a greater Sabbath rest that benefits mankind in an even greater way. Listen to how Paul writes about this in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. There we read about the Sabbath, but what do we read about it? Therefore, no one is to act as your judge, right, putting the burden on you, in regard to food or drink, or respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a, there it is, Sabbath day. He says, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You see how ultimately all of these regulations, all of these burdens, all of these were shadows of something to come, the fulfillment of which is Christ. And the Old Testament Sabbath day was just a shadow of things to come. What was it a shadow of? Well, the substance belongs to Christ. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And the Jews were busy chasing shadows. You ever seen a dog that chases his shadow? Yeah, does he ever catch that shadow? 
No, he just spends himself exhausting all of his energy, all of his time. That's the burden that the Jews were facing as Jesus came to share the good news of the gospel that he would bear the greatest of all burdens on their behalf. The shadow has no substance on its own. The shadow only points to the substance which is in that which casts the shadow. So does that mean then for us as Christians that the shadow has now been abolished? Right? That's a good question for us to ask. Well, no. Jesus says he's not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So the Old Testament Sabbath isn't abolished. It is fulfilled in Christ. We still need a rest. But Jesus has come to provide for us a greater rest. Here's how the author of Hebrews describes it in Hebrews chapter 4. Listen to the word rest as we read through this. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was united by faith in those who heard it. What matters? That faith comes along with the word. For we who have believed enter that rest. You see that? We who have believed enter that rest. Just as he has said, and I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. There's that initial Sabbath again. The author of Hebrews is pointing to. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 6, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, there's still a rest for some to enter. And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day. Do you see this? There's another certain day that God is fixing for individuals to rest. When is the Sabbath for the Christian? Well, here it is. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7. He says, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time as he has been said before, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So there remains a Sabbath rest for people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works. What works, my friends? The works you were doing to try and earn your own salvation, right? Jesus has come as the fulfillment of that shadow. Jesus has come as the one who obeys the law. Jesus has come as the one who has lived in perfect righteousness that you could not live. Jesus has come who, to bear the burden that we could not bear that was crushing us on our own as he himself was crushed on the cross of Calvary so that we might have life in him. That's the good news of the gospel, that the Sabbath has ultimately found its fulfillment in Christ Jesus who comes to provide for us a greater rest, an enduring rest, a rest without all the burdens, a rest without all the obligations. So the author of Hebrews shows us here that there's a Sabbath rest for God's people. When is it? It is today, he says. What is the rest that we have? It is the rest that we take hold of by hearing God's voice and not hardening our hearts. So let me close with this Final verse, final couple of verses that really goes back to what Keith shared with you just a couple of weeks ago. This idea of rest and the rest that only Christ could provide is most fully played out in what we see him saying in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. Jesus says this to you, my friends. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Are you, are you exhausted? Are, are you overburdened? Are you finding yourself under the load of trying to, to carry your own righteousness and finding out that time and time again you fall short? Then, My friends, I have good news for you. God has a rest for you. God has provided that rest in the form of Christ Jesus who has come, has kept the obligations of the law 
the things you could not do. He has lived in perfect righteousness, the sinless one, and he died in our place, the just for the unjust, that we might be reconciled to God through his blood, which was shed as the payment of our penalty. Isn't that good news? That's the hope of the gospel, that we have a Sabbath rest, and our Sabbath rest is fulfilled in Jesus. I no longer have to go through worrying about whether I'm keeping the nth degree of God's law. I now live by the law of grace, the law of the Spirit within me, guiding me to live according to God's purposes. I don't have to worry about the burdens. Am I keeping every obligation? Jesus has done that, and now he gives me life and guides me through his Spirit to live with the heart of God. Do you see that transition? That's the beauty of what we talk about when we're sharing a Sabbath for Christians. Does that mean it's not a good idea to gather together or maybe to, to, to take a little time off on a seventh day of the week of some sort? No, it doesn't mean that's a bad idea. That's still a good principle that God's given. It's still a great thing to do, a great healthy habit for you in your life. I read the other day, now I'm a bad one to champion this, but I read the other day that Ultimately, the amount of sleep that you get each night is, is the best indicator of how long you will live. And so to that I say, it's been a good run, folks, <laughs> because I don't always get that great sleep. But yeah, God's given a great gift in taking time to relax, but he's given an even greater gift in the fact that Christ Jesus has come, the righteous one for the unrighteous, to give us forgiveness and peace and hope and life. Do you know that peace? Do you know that hope? Are you resting in that Sabbath? Can you lay your head on your pillow at night knowing with great comfort and assurance that if my life ends, Christ has me in his grip, that I am eternally secure in him? Can you rest in that way, my friends? Well, I want to tell you that rest is available to each and every one of you. I don't care who you are, where you've been, what you've done. Jesus has paid it all. He simply asks for us to entrust our lives to him and so we're going to close with a word of prayer then we're going to have a time of invitation if god is calling you to respond in that way if you need an eternal rest if you want the comfort and the assurance of knowing that you have peace with god and you don't have to earn it on your own and i want to tell you my friends i would love to be a friend to lead you to this rest i'm not one who owns this rest in my own right it is not mine to provide but i would be happy to lead you to the savior in whom i have found this rest all right would you pray with me father as we share in these moments we share in a great appreciation a great joy for the rest that you have provided for us father help us not to cling to our own actions to rely on our own deeds to get caught up in the burdens of trying to live in a certain way that ultimately doesn't rely upon your spirit and your grace and your mercy guiding us, Lord. Bless us to know that you have greater things in store for us, and Lord, may we cling to the hope of the gospel, not to the hope of our deeds. May we run to the grace of Christ, not labor and be crushed under the burdens of keeping our own obligations. God, we thank you for the joy that you've paid it all, and I pray that in these final moments, Lord, if there are decisions that need to be made here, if there are individuals who need to cling to that grace, who need to give a testimony to that grace, who need a body of faith that can encourage them on in that grace, then God, I pray you would work through your spirit to let folks know that you are working here and that answers can be found here, that your spirit is alive here, that your church is working as the body of Christ here. And may we rejoice, O oh Lord, at what you continue to do through us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.